Good morning. My name is Michael Neal, and I'm not the typical um, face you see up front here. David is on vacation with his family, and I pray that he has a great, refreshing time away with them. Uh, A number of weeks ago, um, David preached a sermon, and uh, he talked about how really the church is the participants, not uh, uh, not just the audience. And I was sitting out in the audience nodding in assent, and uh, all of a sudden, a couple of weeks later, here I am. So you ought to be careful when you agree in concept with David or the pastors. Um, but my name is Michael Neal, and I'm one of the elders here. Um, you see, um, when David asked me to preach, I had initially two feelings, one of arrogance, pride. Hey, he must really think I have something to say. And then of great fear, which is like, oh my goodness, I could really bomb up here. Um, But when I took the focus off of myself, I asked the question, what has God been teaching me in this season of my life that I would want to share with you? And then it became easy because I knew what God has been uh, teaching me. You see, I've been called an angsty Christian by people that I respect. While I don't love that name, I don't deny the truth of it. I wrestle with my faith. It doesn't come easy to me. I, I question. I oftentimes doubt. I don't know if it's nature or nurture, but I've always felt this way, and it's part of my identity as a believer. And yet God has relentlessly pursued me despite myself, and he continues to pursue me even in my own doubts. Um, And so um, one of the themes that I see in Scripture, that I think we can see in Scripture pretty clearly, is that God uses broken people for his purposes. And so here I stand in front of you to deliver a sermon. Um, And the sermon is on doubt. Doubt is something that we all experience, and it's something that's not particularly spiritual. Simply speaking, doubt is uh, to question the truth or the certainty of something, which means it can apply in many contexts. In my personal life, I might doubt if I can fix the ceiling in my family room without calling in Scott McAnally, right? Professionally, I might doubt if I'll have the time to work on this big project that I want to work on because of my other responsibilities. Financially, I might doubt if I'll get to the place where I can have enough money to retire. Relationally, I might doubt if I can fix a broken relationship, you know, a friendship or something, if I doubt if that can be restored. So I think doubt is a pretty common experience to us all. Why do we doubt? Well, because life is full of uncertainty. Because truth is oftentimes hard to discern. And let's not forget that we doubt oftentimes because we've been hurt. And so it's hard to believe. Doubt is a natural extension of the fallen world in which we live. So as we define doubt today, I want to start with a fine but important distinction. That doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. Doubt is simply a lack of certainty. And there are many of us who believe that also struggle with doubt. So today we're going to read a relatively well-known psalm that deals with spiritual doubts in the life of a believer. And we'll look at what doubt is, where it comes from, and how we might respond to the spiritual doubts in our lives. 
So if you would turn to uh, Psalm 73 or open it up on your phone, and if you're able, would you please stand? We're going to read the in, in its entirety. So get comfortable. Don't lock your knees. That's what I'm telling myself up here right now. <clears throat> psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs unto death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them, and they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the days long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I would speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Here's an important turn in the psalm. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakens, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nonetheless, I am, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom and I am in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth I desire but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is, my, is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Lord God, bless the reading of the scripture. If there's anything true in what's said up here, anything that's from your word, may it fall on receptive ears. If there's anything that is not true, that's not from you, Lord, uh, just push that aside, push it out of our minds as if, as if it were never spoken. In your son Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. I've been teaching uh, high school Sunday school for a number of years. And one of the things we do each time we read a part of scripture is to ask where it's from. What kind of book is it? We know that all scripture has truth, but that truth is presented in different ways in different parts of scripture, right? Like, so we have some that are histories, some books that are prophecies, some books that are letters, some books that are wisdom statements, right? And one of the ways that people misread scripture is to not understand that you have to read different parts of scripture differently and ask what kind of truth is in it. So Psalms are pretty straightforward. I think we know most of us, if you've been in church for some time, Psalms are simply there. Uh, it's a song book. It's a book of, of, of poetry of, of songs. Uh, they're full of truth, but the kind of truth they have is usually not in the form of like heavy theology or doctrine. 
right? Psalms tend to be poetic language of the heart. Now, when I say poetic language of the heart, you might have one of two kind of reactions to that. Either you say, yes, of course they are. That's why I love the Psalms so much. I camp out in the Psalms. I go to the Psalms all the time. Or you might say, oh, great, here's this English professor up here. He's going to be talking about poetry and feelings and all these kinds of things today. And uh, it's going to be light on truth, light on, you know, light on anything of substance. But I think the Psalms demonstrate a very healthy connection between the head and the heart. And if anything is light on truth today, it's not the fault of the Psalms. It's the fault of the preacher. So I have to credit um, Tim Keller for the backbone of this sermon um, about a year ago, I'm listening to podcasts a lot. I'm walking during COVID and, and trying to get exercise and everything. So I'm listening to a lot of podcasts and came across a series that Keller had done about two ways that basically Christians um, uh, can approach emotions that are unhealthy. The first way is, and he defines doubt in his first sermon in this series as an emotion. Uh, the, the first way we, we tend to, uh, more the traditional way maybe of approaching emotion, is that we sort of stuff it down. We deny it. We, we, um, we, we're suspect of our emotions. We, um, we don't think that there's reality, and so they're not trustworthy. So this is sort of an old-fashioned, stoic approach. Could be very Presbyterian of us, right? Maybe a newer way, and, and Keller calls this a secular way, but I actually see this in the church quite a bit these days would be to maybe elevate or even celebrate our emotions, even something like doubt. When I was preparing for the sermon today, I was surprised that there's like this, um, and even distress, that maybe doubt has become trendy, sort of hip to be a doubting Christian. Um, and certainly, like in my own life, God can use doubt to strengthen our faith. But we'd be mistaken if we believe that doubt is really open-mindedness, and it's a virtue. Faith and certainty are virtues in the Bible. Doubt is not. And yet, again, God uses all kinds of things to strengthen and deepen our faith. So if these two extremes are sort of not the unhealthy ways of thinking about emotions like doubt, Keller presents maybe a, um, a third way. He calls it a third gospel way in which um, we think about presenting our emotions, presenting our feelings, and holding them out to God, and asking him to show us what's true and what's not true. And I think that's what happens in this psalm, in Psalm uh, 73 here today. So we're going to go through the psalm just sort of section by section and break it down. It's not a difficult passage. Uh, we weren't in the middle of a sermon series, so I could choose whatever passage that I wanted, and I didn't choose the hardest <laughs> scripture to preach on for my first, first sermon. Um, but we'll, we'll break this down into parts, and we'll see again how, how this believer deals with doubt, um, what it is, and how God responds in the midst of doubt. The first thing we see, even in, in verse 1, and you might skim over this because it might not feel meaningful to you, but this is a psalm of Asaph. Asaph, not a real familiar name in the Bible. But if we look it up, we can find out that Asaph is actually one of the choir directors in the time of King David. So we know David is also a psalm writer. Um, but what this would mean is that... Um, Asaph would have been a sort of a, a spiritual leader in high standing. He would have been very visible 
in the community of believers. He, you know, David, a man after God's own heart, he would not have had a slouch as a choir director, right? So, you know, in some ways, he's our Russell. Or, you know, I don't know who you like, Shane and Shane or Laura Story or Chris Tomlinson, um, even George Beverly Shea, right? For, uh, for those of us who remember the Billy Graham tours, right? Highly respected, highly visible, mature in the faith. And yet we see doubt expressed in this psalm from that mature believer. Let me ask you a question. Do we assume, do you assume, do I assume that people who doubt are less mature believers? Do we maybe judge people if they express doubts? Would we lose respect for people if you found out that they wrestled with doubt, even our own pastors? That's a dangerous position to put people in, to assume that a mature believer doesn't have doubt. It can lead to shaming, to silence, a false sense of what it even means to be a believer, that we have it all figured out, that we don't question things anymore, right? Do you think our pastors or church leaders are better people just because they have followed God's calling to become a vocational minister? It forces them into a very dangerous position of either expressing some of the things they're feeling, some of the things they may be doubting, some of the sin in their life, at which point they could be judged, or it, it forces them to, um, to not be able to express these things at all, to pretend like they have it all figured out. One thing I love about Scripture is it's easy enough for the small child to believe, and yet it's so complex that the most mature believer will have things to wrestle with, you know, constantly until this side of eternity. Wildwood, are we a safe place for people who express doubt? Are we a safe place for our church leaders, for those people who work here, for those who volunteer, for those who are members, for those who are visiting to come in and say, I'm just not sure I believe this stuff. Can we handle that? Parents, is your home a safe place for your kids to talk through doubts? Do we silence them or make them feel guilty if they have questions about God or the Bible? They'll learn very quickly if we're more committed to surface-level compliance than allowing them to wrestle with their faith, which we want them to do in the safety of our own homes before we launch them out into the world. And it doesn't just apply to parents. What about spouses? What about friends? Do we have the freedom to come to each other and say, I'm really struggling with this, really wrestling with this? Can we handle that level of uncertainty? Or does that make us so uncomfortable that we just sort of shut down? I'm grateful that a man like Asaph, who was of high standing, would have the courage to write Psalm 73. Seeing how a mature believer addresses doubt, I think is really the central theme of Psalm 73. So let's start with verse, we'll keep, keep going in verse one, right? He starts with a statement of certainty and truth. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now by the time Asaph is writing this psalm, he's sort of, he's thinking back in this season of his life. And so he's worked through all the things that we're going to go through in the next several verses. 
And so while in just a moment, he's going to dive into all the doubt, all the uncertainty, all the problems, but he doesn't want to start that way. He starts with a statement of truth. Right before we started here today, uh, um, before I started, we were singing, great is your faithfulness, right? Starting with something that you know to be true about God is a great place as a believer, even to enter into your seasons of doubt. God, you're good. God, you're faithful. God, you are the healer. God, you are all-knowing. Even this short one-verse statement of God being good to Israel is a good model for us to say, start with the truth, something about God's character, even if we're about to question it and put it to the test. Then verses 2 through 15 become sort of our laundry list of all the problems. Asaph is sort of flashing back to this time in his life where he says, um, you know, there's a big but at the beginning of 2. But, God, I believe that you are, are good to your people, those who are pure in heart, but, but as for me. And then he says, he uses metaphoric language, I almost stumbled, I almost slipped. But what he's saying in that metaphoric language is very clear and it's very serious. God, I almost lost my faith. Something had happened in his life that became such an obstacle for him that he almost lost his faith. Asaph, the temple choir director, the public figure, the mature believer was dealing with a serious crisis of doubt. Tim Keller describes doubt as a form of spiritual vertigo that happens when we see or experience something that our heart just can't process. Let me say that again. Doubt is a form of spiritual dizziness or vertigo that happens when you see or experience something that your heart just can't process. And that's exactly what's happening here. What does Asaph believe? God, I know you're good. I know you're, you're, you're good to your people. I know that you're faithful to us for those uh, who believe in you. But, but look at what I see all around me. Spiritual vertigo. This doesn't make sense. You're good. And yet the wicked prosper. They have easy lives. They even mock you. Where are you in the heavens, God? Are you hearing these people speaking against you? This doesn't make sense to me. This is spiritual vertigo. This is doubt. The way that these ancient people are described, I think are fairly similar to maybe how we might see our culture today. What do we see? Self-indulgence, no conscience, pride, violence, arrogance, They're demeaning to the weak. They speak against God with impunity. What I see here doesn't look right to me, God. And then starting in verses 13 and 15, he even complains like, I've tried to keep my life pure. I've tried to put my faith in you. I've tried to honor you. But to what avail? What good has it been for me to be faithful when I see all these other people prospering, when I see all the wickedness that's being, seemingly being rewarded all around me, he has this long list, and it doesn't make sense to him. 
Those of us who struggle with pride probably also struggle, I'm sorry, those of us who struggle with doubt, struggle with pride too, um, also probably struggle with this kind of self-pity that's being shown. Lord, why me? Why my family? Why my business? Why my marriage? Why my health? There's a lot of people out there. Why is it me? So one thing that doubt likes to do is to pretend that it's primarily intellectual, that it's primarily in our mind, that it's really rational. And I think a lot of doubt starts with this kind of cognitive dissonance, again, between like what we believe and what we're actually seeing. But I think ultimately, doubt grows and takes root. It thrives much more deeply in our emotions. Again, when we can't make sense of our experience or what we see in this broken world around us. I want to ask you today, what have you seen or experienced that is most likely to cause this dissonance in you, this crack in your facade of faith, might cause you to doubt? How could God allow such a terrible thing to happen to such an innocent victim? Maybe that victim is yourself. Something's happened to you or a friend. You just think, how can that be? How could God allow for the suffering and even death of this person that I love so dearly? If I were God, I would have healed this person. I wouldn't have had them suffer. This doesn't make sense to me. How can God be really true when I've seen firsthand the hypocrisy of Christians? Maybe it's a family member, a parent, or a church leader that you trusted who really betrayed you, betrayed the faith. How is God good in all that? How could God be withholding from me, from you, the love that you so desperately want in your life? Doesn't he want you to find the love of your life? What about being betrayed by the person who promised to love you unconditionally forever? Is God faithful in that? What if during this season of COVID, your business has been failing, and meanwhile, others are thriving around you, and you think, why? I'm working harder than others. Why is this happening to me? You see, doubters like me like to pretend that their issues with God are based on intellectual and logical inconsistency. But in reality, doubt comes from woundedness, from disappointment, from not being able to make sense of what we see around us. See, at least Asaph was honest about his doubt. As for me, my feet almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. At least he had that ability to self-reflect and say, this is where my doubt is coming from. That doesn't seem consistent. Before we move on from this, these verses here, I want to point to verse 15, which is a, a good counterbalance. Verse 15 says, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of children. Of your children, sorry. This is a good counterbalance because Asaph is acknowledging he has a public role. He understands that if he had expressed all of his doubt 
during the time that he was doubting most deeply, it could have had negative consequences on others around him. So this is where we wanna make sure we wanna stay in the right sort of area of this continuum. Yes, it's not healthy to stuff everything down and to deny it and just to pretend like you don't have your feelings and that you don't see these things happening in the world. On the other hand, it's not healthy all the time to express every single doubt to every single person in your life, especially when you have certain roles. Parents, spouses. When I go up and teach high school, Sunday school class, I don't express every doubt that I've had during the week. It's not healthy for those believers who are maturing. And I think Asaph demonstrates this healthy balance well, even in this psalm. Now, when I was reading, I told you to take note of verses 16 and 17, that they were an important kind of pivot point in this psalm. If you look at the psalms, there are certain types of psalms that we study, and uh, there are wisdom psalms, and there's all kinds of psalms. Uh, This is a kind of psalm that, and this happens quite often, is that it starts off one way, and then there's a really important kind of moment where everything changes. In verses 16 and 17 is that moment where everything changes. It's this shift. It says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me to be a wearisome task. In other words, I'm tired of trying to figure this out. I can't figure this out on my own. I've been wrestling. I've been trying. I've been trying, and my, I bring my best to this, but I can't figure it out. It's a wearisome task. I'm exhausted until I went in to the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. The sanctuary of God. He enters the sanctuary. What does that mean for us today? For Asaph, it was probably very literally the temple. He was a choir director. The word that he uses is actually the plural, sanctuaries, which there were different parts of the temple as you get closer and closer to the Holy of Holies. And that was the inner sanctuary, right? So for Asaph, it probably literally meant going into the temple, and the temple would have represented where God's presence is. For us today, we live on the other side of history of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that opened the sanctuary, that ripped the curtain, that gives us access to God. So sanctuary for us, place of safety, the presence of God, what does that mean for us? could mean something just as like simple as getting up early in the morning and having a quiet time or taking a lunch break and getting, you know, turning off the email and turning down the lights and prayer and meditation. Music is a thing for me that oftentimes ushers me into the presence of God. Singing songs like they sang this morning, very meaningful. Even coming to a church service, Um, for a long time this last year, my family and I weren't coming into this sanctuary here. Um, And I'm grateful for the tech team and how we were able to watch it in our own living room at home. And people can continue to do that. I'm very, very grateful for that. But I wonder what it means for us. Like, can I, do I, do I sense the sanctuary when I'm in my car or when I'm at home in my living room? Or is it good to come into the actual building even in the midst of when I'm doubting and struggling. So when Asaph enters the sanctuary, 
He's humble enough to admit that he can't figure it out on his own. Honestly, folks, that's my biggest problem. When do I ever get to the point where I say, God, I can't figure this out on my own? I so desperately want to figure it out. I want to process it. I want to think about it. I want to talk about it. I want to, all these things, I want to figure it out. But Asaph models for us humility. And he says, I see all these things out in the world that don't make sense to me. And honestly, I can't figure it out. Why is there such evil in the world? Why is there such suffering? Why do we continue to have all these problems? God, I don't know. I'm going to enter the sanctuary. We have to get beyond our independence, our self-sufficiency, our work ethic, our problem-solving, all the things that have made us, quote-unquote, successful in other parts of our life. Or at least we think those things have made us successful. And come in with open hands saying, I don't know. When we enter into the presence of God, he meets us, even in his doubts, with his compassionate presence. When you have doubt, do you give God a chance? Do you move toward him? See, I think doubt can drive us in two directions. Doubt either drives us to hard-heartedness and isolation and movement away from him, and that can mean people sitting in this sanctuary week in and week out. You may be here every single week, but your heart is hard. You've sort of already determined this isn't. You, know, you haven't figured out. God hasn't met you. You're upset, um, whatever your feelings are. Or in this doubt, in this pain, you can move toward God. Today I implore you, if you're like-minded with me, and you doubt and you wrestle, to give God a chance. Enter into his presence, whatever that means, with a willingness to be taught or learn something new. One of my favorite angsty Christians, C.S. Lewis, writes in Surprised by Joy, you must picture me alone in that room in Maudlin, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I'm so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. When God is pursuing you, even in your doubts, if you open your heart to that, He'll find you. He'll, he'll show you himself. He'll reveal himself to you. And he'll meet with you there. So Asaph enters the sanctuary in the last part of that verse in 17. And I discerned their end. He did figure it out. Not on his own. But he figured it out because God told him what was going on. Or at least helped him, helped him see the world more rightly. All the things that he thought were untrue or, or um, inconsistent he realizes that while his own faith may be shaky, he uses the same metaphor of the footing. Remember in verse 2, he talked about almost stumbled, almost slipped. He says that about, um, about the people. You set them in slippery places, and surely they will fall to their ruin. It may look like they're prospering. It may look like they don't have any problems. It may look like their families are all together, their businesses are all together, their marriages are all together. 
But if they are not putting their trust in God, surely they will fall to ruin. He realizes this. Here's a reality that I think most people who are not followers of Christ don't want to admit. That people ultimately don't choose between belief and unbelief. Really, we all have to believe in something. It's just different things that we believe in. What do you believe in? We're all in this messed up world together, and we're all looking for footing in this messed up world. So what do you believe in? Do you believe in your self-sufficiency, in your bank account, in your education, your intellect, your standing in the community, your healthy living, your grades, your athleticism, your beauty, your, what is it? You see, the psalmist concludes that while he may almost stumble, have almost stumbled, our faith is hard at times, but all other options are worse because they lead to ruin. Faith in God of the Bible may not always be easy, but all the other options will lead to ruin. Education, politics, all these things, are they really making our world a better place? Are they changing the hearts of people? I'm an educator. I, I spent a lot of my time doing that, but I have to ask myself, are we solving all these problems? We do a lot of mental gymnastics to blame the other person. Ooh, it's the other political party. Ooh, it's my colleagues at work who don't work as hard as I. Ah, it's these lousy teachers who are out there. That's ah, my spouse or it's my kid. My, you know, my other two kids, you know, whatever. So we like to blame other people so we don't have to face the fact that where we're putting our hope, if it's not in Jesus Christ, um, that's not working. For me, in my own life as a believer, I don't tend to doubt the big picture things about God. I tend to doubt the application in my own life. I believe God is good, but is he good to me when I have this persistent heartache in my life? I believe God is the great physician, but will he heal the person I love? I believe God will keep his promises, but will he keep his promise to me? And honestly, do I even know his promises? One of the big problems we have as believers is we don't even know what God's promises to us are. He doesn't promise us an easy life. I believe that the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in me. But I oftentimes doubt if God will ever overcome the destructive sin patterns in my own life that continue to hobble me as a believer. What about you? Where are you placing your footing? Has it been challenged? If you're putting your footing in anything other than Jesus Christ, it will be challenged. Verses 23 through 28. Ultimately, we need the assurance of a gracious God to get through our doubts. I love this word picture. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you'll receive me to glory. God is holding hand. 
Uh, but I remember when they were young. I don't remember exactly what grade it is. And I don't have a physical picture, but I tell you, I've got this mental picture in my mind when we sent our kids off to probably like maybe second or third grade. And when you do this, basically you send off a giant backpack attached to little legs. And so these twins, I'm dropping them off at school and there's like a tiny little head and these little legs sticking out the bottom, these backpacks that start walking in. And all of a sudden from my car, I see one hand hold out and I see the other one grab the hand. I say, wow. They, they have the security of holding each other's hand. One of my great shames as a husband is I don't hold my wife's hand enough. I just want to hold this big sweaty meat hook, right? But it's, it's, not, it's not that. It's the security. It's the care saying, I've got you and you've got me. And that's what God is showing us in this word picture. Now, the psalmist entered the temple where everything was pointing toward the need for an ultimate sacrifice to deal with the condition of his heart. But today we have something better because we know that Jesus Christ became that sacrifice. How do I know that God will hold on to my hand, that God won't turn his back from me? Because he rejected Jesus on the cross so that he would never reject me. God turned his face from his own son, the only person who ever deserved to have his hand held. And in that terrible moment, that wonderful moment, God turned his back from Jesus so he will never turn his back from us. Grace means that Jesus took upon himself what we deserved so that God will never withdraw his hand from us. Finally, verses 27 and 28 summarize that those who have faith in anything other than God will perish, but those who put their faith in God will receive the reward of God's presence. Listen to this, but it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge so that I may tell of all your works. Despite my doubt, I ultimately put my faith in the safety and the refuge of God's presence. I've got one minute left, and I'd like to conclude with a quick look at the most famous doubter probably in all of history, the Apostle Thomas, who's nicknamed Doubting Thomas 2,000 years later. How would you like for your worst failure to become your nickname throughout history? <laughs> I'd hate to think what they would call me. In John 20, we learn that Thomas wasn't there the first time that Jesus appears to his disciples and he eats with them. And so when they tell Thomas about what's happened, he doesn't believe, he doubts. And he says, hey, I don't, not, I, I don't just need to see him and eat with him. I need to touch his wounds. I need to put my hand in his side. Oh, Thomas. So Jesus shows up and gives him exactly what he needs. And Thomas goes and touches his wounds and verifies it. Upon doing this, Thomas proclaims, my Lord and my God. Bible scholars will say this is the loftiest, highest expression of faith in all of Scripture. My Lord and my God. Even more than Peter saying that you're the Messiah. This is the most important statement of faith in all of the Gospels. And it was given by doubting Thomas. Now Jesus 
commends those who have more faith than Thomas. He says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. But even Thomas utters the greatest statement of faith in scripture, because doubt isn't the opposite of faith, it's the opposite of certainty. And God can use our doubt to produce great faith.